Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day, a stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and to the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. I'm feeling thankful this life for me who tasted death for me and then defeated death so I can have hope. I'm also feeling thankful for lots of little gifts like sunshine. After this last winter, winter isn't springtime great. And I'm glad we celebrate Easter every spring as the world is coming back to life. We can appreciate the worship team leading us this morning. That was good. I'm thankful for Pastor Chauncey and... Jared leading us this morning, thankful for the sound team in the back serving us, thankful for the setup team, thankful for Rancho Village letting us meet in this beautiful place with stained glass windows. Isn't God good? I'm just telling you, it's great. We've got a lot to celebrate this morning. I'm thankful for God's grace to forgive my sins, which are many. But most of all, we're celebrating today the truth of the words spoken by Mary Magdalene, the first witness of the resurrection in verse 18. Look at that verse. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. That claim, the claim that Jesus has risen from the dead, 
is the most important claim that has ever been made. The, the death of Jesus is the moment in history where God reveals the, himself a created human nature with all of its vulnerability so that he can bear our weakness, our guilt, our shame and ultimately our death on our behalf. And then he rose on the, the move in a new way, healing the wounds of the world and setting all things right. That claim that Jesus died and rose again is the heart of Christianity. It's the heart of the gospel. And I want to emphasize today the claim that Jesus rose from the dead is not a religious idea. It's not a philosophical idea. It's not a metaphor. We're not saying there's a general feeling of the ongoing significance of Jesus after his death. What we're saying is this is a historical fact. There was a moment in history 2,000 years ago in which this man, Jesus of Nazareth, told everybody he was going to die and rise again and then did it. And today I want to do two things. First, I want to ask you to engage both your minds and your imaginations in meditating about history. We're talking about facts. So I want to ask you to engage your mind and your imagination. Both of those are important. And second, I want to spend a few moments reflecting on the enduring significance of this remarkable event. Something happened in history 2,000 years ago, which has changed the shape of world history. We are gathering together today with 2.2 billion Christians all over the globe. Because this little band of followers of Jesus had lives that were transformed by the experience of what is still with us today because Jesus is still alive today. So we're going to meditate on the fact that it happened and on the significance of the fact. Before I start digging into the text with you, I want to invite you to bow your heads with me one more time and pray. And I want to ask you to pray for God's help for everybody, for me and especially for you. Many of you in here are already, but it's easy for our love to grow cold and for our faith to struggle, isn't it? So I want to ask you to quietly, with your head bowed, pray that God would strengthen your faith in Christ and give you a deeper understanding of the reality of the resurrection today. And I assume that there are quite a few people in the room today who are spiritually seeking. You're open to the truth of the gospel or else you probably wouldn't be here today. But you're just not sure. And I want to validate that experience. As a matter of fact, that's the experience I challenge you today. Because whether or not you accept or reject this claim that Jesus rose from the dead will prove to be the single most important fact about your life. So I want to challenge you to do something bold, which is to believe and to see the reality of the resurrection that we're talking about. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, just take a moment to pray for yourself and then I'm going to say a prayer for us today. Our Father in heaven, I pray for the health truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that every one of us would leave here today. Having encountered the risen Jesus and seeking, Lord, I pray that this would be the. The day in which faith dawns. 
Lord, I pray self and for all of us here, forgive our sins, fill us with your Holy Spirit and remove anything that would block us from being completely receptive to your truth today. We pray that you would be glorified in this time in Jesus name and all God. try to engage our minds and our imaginations to meditate on the fact of this historical event. Simon, Peter and the guy who this gospel refers to as the beloved disciple. Imagine what they were thinking and feeling on this day that we just read about. First, let's think about what Simon Peter and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, had with Jesus. These men were fishermen when they met Jesus. Work miracles. And they were impressed enough that on a certain day when Jesus came to them and said, follow me, they left everything and followed Jesus. And that was the beginning of a three-year relationship in which they spent almost all day, every day with Jesus. And they came to trust him and to love him. They watched him perform countless miracles. They heard him explain God's word. Simon Peter and John were the two disciples who were the very closest to Jesus, even among his twelve. Jesus took them aside, along with John's brother James, for the most intimate moments of his ministry. He taught them things that they were. And as he was teaching them, Jesus said to them on at least three different occasions, I'm going to be handed over at least three times. He told them that, but they did not believe it. And then the moment finally came where they were with Jesus, praying with him in Gethsemane. And he kept saying to them, stay awake and pray with me. The hour has come that I've been telling you about. Stay awake and pray with a mob that had come to arrest Jesus. Peter pulled his sword and cut off the ear of one of those soldiers. But Jesus said, put away your sword, Peter, and then healed the man. And Jesus willingly and peacefully went with those who came to arrest him. At this moment, all the disciples. Later that night, Peter would three times deny that he even knew Jesus. John did a little bit better at the cross of Jesus, watching Jesus dies, although a, a number of Jesus' female followers were there, including Mary Magdalene. And now he's gone, he's dead, and it's been about 40 hours since he died. And can you imagine the grief they were feeling? Several people in this room are very familiar with grief, even just from the last year or even the last couple of weeks. It hurts to lose a loved one, doesn't it? They lost their closest friend. They also lost the man whom they believed was going to save the world. And we can imagine that they were almost certainly wrestling with what today we would call survivor's guilt. He died and we should have died with him, but we abandoned him. Mary was with two other women, and it's clear from verse 2. She says, we saw his tomb and it was empty. Although John only talks about Mary Magdalene. He wants to highlight her. And... Notice she does not say the tomb was empty. I think he came back to life. And robbed the tomb. Now that might sound weird to you, but that wasn't that uncommon at the time. Grave robbers would come and you when you take the tomb, you take the tomb and you take all the linens with it, which were valuable and expensive. And you take all the uh, those linens are usually covered with spice in the building in order to rob the copper. Right. But grave robbers would desecrate a tomb and a body. So they usually are going to come get that body out as fast as they can. And 
take those cloths, get those ready. When Simon and John heard this, they're starting to think, wait, grave robbers took it? We know that there were Roman soldiers posted as guards of that tomb. And there was a big stone that blocked the way. This story. And they run and run and run. And when they get there, there's got to be something stirring in their heart. They're thinking, they're grieving and they're feeling guilty. And they may be thinking, now has insult been added to injury? Not only did they kill him and slander him, but now they've stolen and desecrated his body. But they also might be thinking, or is it something else? Did they really steal his body or did something different happen here? Did he do? Let's look at verse three through seven again. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and stooping to look in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Guess what, friends? If grave robbers come and rob the tomb, they don't take the time to unwrap the unwrap the body and leave the only valuable thing in the tomb. So John sees that and thinks, this isn't a grave robbery. Peter's struggling. After all, Peter just denied three times that he knew Jesus. So he goes all the way in. And when he goes in, look at verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Grave robbers definitely don't do that. I've had my house broken into and ransacked and people stolen. They did not leave everything neat and folded, right? That's just not how it goes. So now, something stirs within their heart. Despair begins to go away. Hope begins to rise. Believed. He believed. He believed. Now, he believed even though he didn't quite understand yet. Because verse 9 says, For as yet passages of Scripture, such, such as Psalm 16.10 and Isaiah 53.10, had pointed forward to this reality that had been trying to teach his disciples that this was going to happen, but they still didn't understand. After witnessing the resurrection, later they were going to go back and reread what we call the Old Testament and see, oh, now it makes sense. By on. By the way, maybe that should be a word of encouragement for all of us today. Anybody here want to follow Jesus, but you feel like you don't understand much? St. Augustine and St. Anselm both spoke of the Christian spiritual life as faith seeking understanding. Faith seeking understanding. Know him and asking him to teach me more. And at this moment, they're just at the beginning. They don't understand much, but joy is awakening in their hearts. And before long, they're going to see with their eyes. That's Simon and John, but I really like to think about Mary in this story. Let's think for a second about Mary, who was called Magdalene. She's called that because she's from a little town called Magdala, which is in northern Galilee. We don't know a whole lot about this Mary. It's not Mary, the mother of Jesus. It's not Mary, the sister of Martha. There was a bunch of Marys following Jesus. And this is Mary from Magdala. What we do know about her is that Jesus drove seven evil spirits out of her. So probably she first encountered him during his ministry in Galilee. You remember, if you read through the Gospels, crowds of thousands of people would come to Jesus and he would heal their sick and he would cast out demons. And apparently 
Mary Magdalene was one of these. She came to him and she had been tormented by seven evil spirits, but he drove them out. He set her free. And we also know from that moment, she loved Jesus. Lots of people were healed, but most people did not follow him after that. But Luke chapter 8 tells us that Mary was one among many women who began to follow. They traveled with Jesus and with his 12 disciples. This was something that was very unusual at the time. Traveling rabbis and prophets didn't include women in their entourage, but Jesus treated women with incredible respect and dignity as God's image bearers. And Mary would travel with Jesus and the disciples. Apparently, she was a woman of means. She had some money because Luke 8 also tells us that these women financially supported the ministry of Jesus. We don't know a whole lot about the specific experiences that Mary had while traveling with Jesus and supporting his ministry. But we do know that at the moment of his crucifixion, when all but one, apparently, of Christ's male disciples has run away, Mary Magdalene was mentioned as one of those who was loyal to him to go as a supporter openly to grieve for him at his cross. That was an act of courageous and dangerous loyalty. He was being crucified as a subversive political revolutionary. If you go stand by the cross mourning for him and grieving for him as a supporter of him openly, there's a good chance that you're next. That's why the disciples were running away, but not Mary Magdalene. Her love for Jesus was greater than her fear. We don't know yet, or we don't, we don't know at all, if Mary had heard the teaching of Jesus that he was going to die and rose again. Maybe she had heard that, maybe she hadn't. We do know either that she hadn't heard it or that if she did hear it, she didn't understand and believe it any more than the rest of the disciples. Because she's not going expecting the resurrection And when she finds an empty tomb, she thinks there must have been grave robbers, even though that doesn't necessarily make sense. She's just trying to find some way to explain what happened. She was not expecting the resurrection. And so she goes with a couple of other women early in the morning. They had waited throughout the Sabbath day. Remember, Jesus is killed on Friday evening. Saturday is the Sabbath. Jews aren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. And so in honor of the commandment of the Lord, she rests on the Sabbath. And then early on Sunday morning, she goes to the tomb with burial spices to honor the body of Jesus. She's looking to tomb, runs back, tells the disciples, runs back again. At this moment, it seems clear that she is distraught. She's in shock. She doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know what to think. As a matter of fact, according to our text, even when two angels who look like men appear to her and Jesus shows up, she doesn't know what to do. She doesn't know what to think. She assumes that they are groundkeepers. And the one thought is Jesus. So she keeps asking, When Jesus shows up, she initially doesn't recognize him until he calls her by name. Verses 15 and 16 are touching. Look at them again with me. Jesus said to her, that is to Mary Magdalene, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. At first, she doesn't recognize him. Maybe she doesn't. Something is awakened in her heart. 
Charles Spurgeon wrote about this verse in the simple utterance of her name. There were tones she could not mistake. At this moment, she's overwhelmed with joy. She says, Rabbani, which means teacher, but it's a particularly strong and affectionate term for teacher. And apparently at this moment, she reaches out to grab hold on him. She's just so happy. I mean, all of us know grief, or most of us know grief in here. And imagine if someone you thought you were parted from, whom you loved more than anybody in the world, if all of a sudden they were back. Wouldn't you want to cling to them? So she goes to him to embrace him. And in this moment, Jesus says something which might at first sound strange to her. Let's look again, verse 17 and 18. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And then we read verse 18. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Let's consider what Jesus says to her. Listen, Jesus is tender with her. Jesus is kind to her. It's an unbelievable honor that the creator of the universe, after he dies and rises again, chooses this woman to be the first witness of his resurrection. He reveals himself to her first. And yet, he's saying to her, right now, what you're mainly thinking about is your own personal joy at our reunion But Mary, there are bigger things going on in this moment. When he says, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended. Basically, what he's saying is this. I know you're happy to see me and I'm happy to see you. But we're not here just to celebrate this reunion. I haven't finished yet what I'm doing. Everything is about to change. That's what Jesus is saying. What does it mean when... Jesus says, I have not yet ascended. Well, Mary probably didn't fully understand yet. Almost certainly she did not. But as time went on, the apostles would come to understand that the whole story of the gospel was the story of God, the creator, entering into his creation in a new way in order to go down, down, down in descending love and then to come up, up, up with resurrecting and ascending power. C.S. Lewis describes it like this. In the Christian story, God descends, he goes down to re-ascend, to come back up. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. What is C.S. Lewis saying? He's saying at this moment we're at a turning point of history because God entered into creation not only to become like us, but to go all the way to bearing our sin, our death, to bearing all the consequences of sin, to bearing hell itself, and then rising. And when he rises, he is taking his broken and wounded creation, and he is healing it, and he's resurrecting it, and he's bringing it back up with him to glory. 
The resurrection of Jesus is the beginning of a movement that won't be done until Jesus returns and all creation is renewed. That's what he's saying. And he says, Mary, what I'm doing is a pretty big deal, but I've got a big job for you, too. You're going to be my first witness. This is amazing. Listen, in the ancient world, in this context, both the Jewish and the Roman world were very misogynistic. They had very low, disrespectful views of women, such that the testimony of women was not even accepted in almost any ancient law court. Consider that. And yet Jesus has a different mentality because he chooses this woman to be the first witness. He honors her. And when she goes, she's going to say several things. First of all, she's going to say, he is alive. As we've been saying, the Lord is risen. Oh, Jared got it. The rest of y'all missed your cue. Here we go. The Lord is risen. But not only that, everything she's going to say to the disciples is going to touch their hearts. What does Jesus tell her to say? First of all, he, she tells her to call them his brothers. If you're Peter, that's a glorious word. You just abandoned Jesus. You just denied Jesus. And yet he says, you're my brother still. That word is filled with grace. Here's what it means. For everybody in here who thinks this sounds great, but I'm too much of a sinner. I've done too much evil. God couldn't possibly love me. God is saying in Jesus Christ, I know all about that, but I still love you. That's what he's saying when he says, go and tell my brothers. I know all about their failure, but I haven't stopped loving them. And then he says, tell them I'm ascending. In other words, tell them that I'm renewing creation. All that stuff I've been telling them that I came to do that they didn't understand or believe is really happening now. And then he says, I'm going back to my God and your God, to my father and your father. What does that mean? Here's what it means. The eternal son of God who has eternally abided in the love of his father took on a human nature and showed us what it means for a human being to live in perfect union with God. And now he's saying to everybody who trusts in him, if you trust Jesus Christ, the God of Jesus Christ is your God. The father of Jesus Christ is your father. And by grace, you have been received into a covenant of love with God, which cannot be broken. That's glorious news. Can you imagine what was Mary was thinking and feeling in that moment? I've been appealing to your imagination, but for just a second, I want to appeal to your reason. I just want to ask you to think about the facts for a second. This event, the resurrection of Jesus, changed world history. I don't think it's even a historically controversial claim that it changed world history more than anything has ever changed world history. That's not even a religious claim. It's just a fact. If you don't believe Christianity is true, this event, whatever happened right here, still changed the world more than anything else ever changed the world. And I want you to listen to the facts about this event. First, fact number one, we have at least 12, we have eyewitness accounts of at least 12 different incidents in which Jesus appeared to people after his crucifixion. He appeared to them as the risen Lord. Twelve different incidents that we have eyewitness accounts. I'm not just saying Christians believe that. Historians, Christian and non-Christian, believe that. That there's at least twelve separate occasions in which people claim to have seen the resurrected Jesus. Moreover, 
If you look at these 12 different events, he appeared sometimes to individuals, as in the case of Mary Magdalene, sometimes to a group of two at one point, one time to a group of seven, one time to a group of ten, one time to a group of eleven, and one time to a crowd of at least 500 people. That's a lot of people at once. When he appeared to these people on these at least 12 different occasions, they saw Jesus. They heard Jesus. They touched Jesus. He spoke with them. He answered their questions. And on one occasion, he ate a breakfast of fish with them, which is important because ghosts don't eat fish. Here's another fact. None of those people believed in the resurrection before they saw it. This was not confirmation bias. They all thought he's dead. Some of his own disciples, what we learn is even after they're told, I saw the risen Jesus, his own disciples didn't believe it until they saw it. But then after they saw it, every one of them believed it and devoted the rest of their lives to bearing witness to the fact many of them were tortured and imprisoned and died because of their witness to this fact. Now, I want you to think about it. People die for movements, but people don't usually die for factual claims. This was not a political movement. These were not political revolutionaries. What they were saying is, I don't care what y'all think. I saw him. He's alive. And that claim was such a threat to the power structures of the Roman world that many of them were imprisoned and beaten and brutally killed in public in an effort to pressure them to deny this fact. And not one of them denied it. Not one of those eyewitnesses. This is a claim that is attested not only by early Christian witnesses, but by early Jewish and Roman pagan witnesses. The enemies of Jesus did not produce a body because there was no body. The witnesses to the resurrection were witnessing very early during a time in which their claims could easily have been falsified. I mean, think about it. That just 25 years after the event of his resurrection, the Apostle Paul could write a letter to the Corinthians that would be widely circulated, claiming Jesus appeared at one point to 500 people at once. The resurrected Jesus. Listen, if that was a lie, there's a whole bunch of people who could say, no, that never happened. But nobody falsified those claims. These basic facts are generally acknowledged by serious skeptical historians as well as Christians. And over the years, people have tried to provide some sort of rational explanation for these events other than that he rose from the dead. Here's the main contenders. Some people have tried to argue, well, either he didn't really die, he just like fainted and swooned, or he died and then was resuscitated. This one hasn't been argued for a while because lots of historians and medical people have said that is totally impossible. He was brutally beaten. He was flogged. They put nails in his hands. They hung him up there to hang until he was asphyxiated. Roman soldiers who were familiar with death stabbed him with a spear in order to make sure that he was dead. He lost massive amounts of blood and water. They would have tested to make sure that he didn't have a pulse and wasn't breathing. 
They were experts in death, the Roman soldiers. And then they buried him. And you expect us to believe that after lying there, bleeding and dehydrated for 40 hours, then he got up, removed the stone, walked out, and people started worshiping him? That claim has been so discredited that nobody tries it today. Another ancient claim was it was a conspiracy. The disciples made a plot, a conspiracy to try and convince everybody that he was raised from the dead. The problem with this theory is that it fits literally none of the facts. All of the eyewitness testimony tells us that the disciples stubbornly disbelieved in his resurrection until after they witnessed it. It doesn't take into account the fact that there were people like the Apostle Paul, who was an early conveyor of the conspiracy theory. He went around telling everybody, Jesus didn't really die and rise again. He died and then his disciples lied and said he rose again. And then the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul. And he spent the rest of his life going around telling everybody about it. It doesn't take into account the fact that dozens of these people were imprisoned and killed. And not one of them recanted, which is much more successful than any conspiracy theory I know of. And everybody holding together. So the conspiracy theory hasn't been argued by skeptical historians um, who are, actually know what they're talking about for a long time. More recently, people have tended to argue with a hallucination theory. They had a hallucination. They wanted him to be alive, so they imagined that they saw him. And that one is, is still something that some skeptical historians will argue. But listen, you need to consider the facts that you just heard. Twelve different eyewitness accounts. Some of them by individuals. Some of them by... That is a very coordinated hallucination. Eleven people from different angles in the same room saw the exact same thing, heard the exact same thing. It's not psychologically plausible. In fact, these theories have in general become so discredited that hardly anybody tries to propagate them anymore. Now, if you're here and you're spiritually seeking and you're wondering if this is true, you might be saying, yeah, but you're a pastor. You're supposed to believe this stuff. It's like your job. Right? And you may be thinking I'm making it up that skeptical historians believe this. So let me just give you a few counterexamples. So a lot of you are familiar with Bart Ehrman. Y'all know Bart Ehrman? No. OK. Well, you must not watch a lot of atheist YouTube videos because they, they quote Bart Ehrman a lot. Or if you must not have gone to college and taken Origins of Christianity class, because if you go to a secular university, they're going to give you books by Bart Ehrman. He's a very famous scholar. He's a historian. And he's made his living. He was a devout Christian who eventually came to disbelieve in historic Orthodox Christianity. He's written a lot on Jesus and on the Bible and the gospel. And he openly attacks the Bible and, and historic Christian belief. As a very prominent scholar. And yet, let me read you a couple quotes from Bart Ehrman. Here's a quote. It is a historical fact that some of Jesus followers came to believe that he had been risen from the dead soon after his execution. Here's another one from Bart Ehrman. It is undisputable that some of the followers of Jesus came to think that he had been raised from the dead and that something had to have happened to make them think so. 
What, what Bart Ehrman is saying is the conspiracy theory has no historical credibility. Okay? They definitely believed it. Something happened that made them think he rose from the dead. He's also saying the swoon theory has no historical credibility. We know as a historical fact that he died and then some of his disciples became convinced that he rose from the grave. So what explains it? In some of his later works, Bar Ehrman says, well, they must have had some sort of a vision. In other words, they saw something. And then he goes on to say, I don't know if the vision was veridical or non-veridical, which is a way for scholars to make you not notice that they're saying, I'm not sure if it was true or not. I don't know if the vision was veridical or non-veridical. It must have been a vision. In other words, he's saying either they hallucinated it or it really happened. And then we're left with, okay, so is it plausible that on all these separate occasions that skeptical historians tell us happened, that all these different people had coordinated identical experiences that involved touching and eating and all that stuff? The best recent scholarly analysis of the historical claims for the resurrection of Jesus is N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. And N.T. Wright is convinced it's true. Okay. He's a Christian. Let me read you a few quotes from N.T. Wright. He says, we are left with the conclusion that the combination of empty tomb and appearances of the living Jesus forms a set of circumstances which is itself both necessary and sufficient for the rise of early Christian belief. Without these phenomena, we cannot explain why this belief came into existence and took the shape it is. It did. With them, we can explain it precisely and exactly. He went on to say that N.T. Wright is a major historian of Christian origins. And he said, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb. Here's another one. These three great facts, the resurrection appearances, the empty tomb and the origin of the Christian faith all point unavoidably to one conclusion, the resurrection of Jesus. Today, the rational man can hardly be blamed if he believes that on the first Easter morning, a divine miracle occurred. When he says that the rise of the Christian faith early on is evidence, here's what he means. All these eyewitnesses were willing to die for the claim. And that's the only reason that the faith spread. Now, I've been taking some time and everybody's hungry and my sermon clock is ticking. I better get down from here soon. I've been talking to you about historians, but let me just appeal to you personally for a second. Here's what I know. I know that there's no amount of historical evidence that can compel belief. There's no amount of historical evidence that can compel belief. Any of us could do what Antony Flew, a famous skeptical philosopher, did when he said, listen, there's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus than for any other miracle in history. And I, I'm not aware of any plausible alternative explanation of that evidence other than the fact that he rose again. Yet, I don't believe that kind of miracle could happen, so I don't believe it's true. Anybody here could do that. But what I am saying to you is this. Not only is it reasonable and rational to believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, but there are so far no other rationally acceptable theories that explain the historical evidence. Which leaves you and me in this position. There are eyewitnesses who paid with their life 
to claim he rose from the dead. And we now have a faith decision. Faith doesn't mean believing against the evidence. It means, am I going to accept these witnesses as their witnesses true or not? Trust. There is a deep existential element to that, which means all of us here have powerful reasons to want to believe it's true, but also powerful reasons not to want to believe it's true. Because if it is true, Jesus is Lord and he gets to tell me what to do with my life. On the other hand, if it is true, Jesus is Lord, which means everything's going to be set right. And what I want to do is to appeal to you right now and say there, there aren't any rationally compelling reasons to reject this claim. There are lots, lots of rationally compelling reasons to accept this claim, but ultimately the choice is yours. And if you choose, the implications are going to be massive. For the last few moments here, let me just say to you a few of the implications. Implication number one. If Jesus rose from the dead, then we'd better take seriously everything he ever said. Because if anybody says three times, I'm going to die and rise again, and then does it, you should listen to what that of God. Like anybody who believes in me will be forgiven of their sins and adopted into the family of God. Jesus makes very definite moral demands on our lives, like love your enemies, forgive those who wrong you, tell the truth. Everything that he said, we better take very seriously. Here's a second implication. If this is true, obviously I'm saying it is. Get connected to the story of Jesus such that you can share in his resurrection. This is the meaning of Christian baptism. It's a picture. It's a symbol embodying the reality that when we trust in Christ, we become participants in his death and resurrection. Listen, everybody in here knows through personal experience that there is good and there is bad in you. Amen. Maybe we should admit it. Anybody knows that there's good in you? Anybody knows that there's bad in you? Okay. The Bible has names for those. There's good in you because you're made in the image of God. The bad in you is called sin. You participating in the death and resurrection of Jesus means all the bad in you is killed and crucified and punished on the cross of Christ so that you don't have to bear the punishment for your sin. And now you're rising with Christ so that all of the good in you is going to be awakened and empowered by the Holy Spirit and you can be a new creation. This also means that one day you will rise again and share with Jesus in a new creation, which gets us to the final point about the implication. If, if Jesus rose from the grave, then one of the things we need to take seriously is that the resurrection of Jesus is going to lead to the resurrection of all created reality, which is to say everything. The cosmos itself is going to be reborn. Hey, listen, if you're struggling with skepticism, let me tell you, one of the things that skeptical rationalism compels you to believe is not only are you going to die, but the universe is going to die. Okay? Not only are you going to die, but the universe is going to die. There's going to come a period where not only this planet, but this universe will no longer uh, be inhabitable by any form of life. It's expanding, and that's going to keep happening until uh, point of no return. But what the Christian gospel says is that the death of the cosmos is followed by the resurrection of the cosmos. God's judgment is followed by God's grace. He's going to make a new creation, which means this life is not vain. Everything in this life, our spiritual life, but also our bodily life is invested by God with sacred significance. And all of it can continue with reverberating effects into eternity. Because just as there's continuity between
the body of Jesus before and after his resurrection. So there is continuity between this earth and the history of this earth and the new creation that God has promised to bring about. Which means, what does that mean? It means that if you change a diaper or if you paint a picture or if you mow a lawn or if you get on your knees to play with your grandkids or if you say a prayer or if you fight for justice or if you teach a Bible study or if you write a poem, if you do anything truly good and beautiful, it will never be lost. By God's grace. Let me read you one more quote from N.T. Wright before I finish. He said, the point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sowing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, Campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day when we'll leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. Now, just a moment. We're going to take some time to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are two ways in which God has given us to go public. With our, it has massive implications for our life. And to take the Lord's Supper is to publicly say, it's true. Jesus died for me. But if you believe it, be baptized in the name of the Lord. Take the Lord's Supper. More importantly, let this truth set you free. And I want to appeal to everybody in this room. By the grace of God, don't wait on this decision. Don't wait on this decision. If you've never trusted in Christ, let today be the day. You don't have to fear death anymore. You don't have to walk under the shame and guilt of your sin anymore. Here today, I want to appeal to you. Let this truth of the resurrection go deeper into your soul and into your bones today. We should be joyful, hope-filled people, church. Because it's true. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, weak and frail though I am, I'm up here trying to do everything I can to say he is risen and I pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to do what no human being can do. By grace, would you give us faith? Would you help us to turn from sin? Would you help us to trust in Christ? I pray that today would be a day of new life for everyone who has not yet trusted Christ and for those who have trusted him, I pray that today would be a day of powerful renewal. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.